Well, hello, ACAC family and visitors. It's good to see all of you today. If you're watching online as well, I want to extend a hello to you as well. Thanks for joining in. Don't let this be your only opportunity to experience ACAC. We invite you down as well. And so for those that don't know me, I'm Pastor Sheldon Williams. I transitioned out of being an administrative pastor to a church planter, and I am the one, along with my wife, who are leading the efforts of church planting in Homestead. Two points of information I want to give you regarding before I go to preaching. But first of all, our church leadership, our pastoral leadership, is traveling to attend a conference of large churches where they talk about challenges that large churches experience, but also share best practices. And some of that information that we glean from those meetings actually come back here, and we've implemented some of that. So the first point is be prayerful for those pastors. Pastor Rock and Pastor Blaine are already en route to that conference. Pastor Ross will be joining them shortly. And they They've turned over the operations into my capable hands. <laughs> so they think. <laughs> so I'm telling you, there's a party in Simpson Hall going to occur. <laughs> right after Ross leaves. Because <laughs> he'll snitch. If he don't snitch, somebody in here will snitch under the guise of a prayer request. Please pray for <laughs> no party. But uh, be prayerful for them. But also the uh, Homestead Church plant, we are moving quickly to having weekly worship services um, starting Easter. And so that's our mark. We're moving quickly to do that. I'm holding a meeting next week um, in Union Place, over in the chapel, Union Place, in the Union Place uh, Union Building. And I'm inviting everyone. I've sent out letters to those who have indicated that they wanted, we had some contact information. But I've had people in passing, in hallways, on, on city streets, at the Kogos, different people say, hey, I might be interested. I'm putting this announcement out now. If you are interested in planting with the church plant in Homestead, I'm inviting you to that meeting because I want to bring you up to date as to how we're approaching that, but also we're beginning to galvanize the team. So that's next week, next Sunday, in UP at 11.30. If you want to be, be a part, please be there. I'm taking my scripture reference from 1 John 3, 1 through 3. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible, but follow along whatever version you may have or just follow along on the screen. <clears throat> the scriptures read as such. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purifies themselves just as he is pure. I've titled today's sermon, Overcoming the Stain. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these moments, the most significant thing that matters right now is that your people hear from you. I am just the mouthpiece, but it needs to be your words that they hear. So, Father, I'm asking for a special, special anointing from the Holy Spirit to be able to speak and to be able to present what it is you have called me to be in this moment. But also prepare the hearts of your people that they are recipients of what it is that you intend to speak to them. Let them take away whatever is necessary that moves them forward in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as I get ready to embark on a sermon, may the Lord be with you. There was a commercial that aired a few years ago that some of you very well may remember. It was a commercial that was promoting a very well-known stain-fighting product, this laundry product. And they were touting the stain-fighting power of this particular item. Now, I'm purposely not mentioning the item or because I don't want to give any unintended endorsement of it. And really, I can't really attest as to whether or not this laundry product works or not. But 
their commercials were quite funny. And there were various aspects of this commercial that they aired. But the basic premise between them was always the same. It would start with two people having a conversation. As one of the individuals was speaking, the other person couldn't focus on any of the words that the person was saying because there was this stain that was just over-talking it. And in fact, they called it the talking stain. And it would go into this incoherent gibberish, just talking over and over as the person was sitting there trying to express themselves. And so the other person who's trying to receive the information couldn't hear a word the man was saying because all he can focus in is on is the same. Well, I believe this illustration is very, very powerful for what I want to talk about today. And I think in case you haven't seen that, I believe our media team might have a small clip of it they want to show you right now. So attention to the side screens. So tell me about yourself. Well, you know, an organized person, somebody who does not need details. I'm actually very, very good with groups. Now, while I and you find this commercial quite funny, it has certain application today. I believe the talking stain can be analogous to something we call shame. The shame I'm speaking about isn't the casual reference that can be commonly used to express somebody's disappointment or their disdain. For instance, you may witness somebody walking down the street, and if it's so much one of the things that you're most bent on, you might see somebody roll up some trash and discard it on the street. It irritates me as well, when they can simply put that item in the trash receptacle into the garbage can. But you might express yourself by simply saying, that's a shame. Well, I'm going beyond just the mere reference of a phrase. I want to talk to you about something that really is a lot deeper than just the mere expression of disappointment. The shame that I'm talking about leads an individual to question the merits of their spiritual journey. I would like to bring clarity to something that has deeper, in, deeper implications for an individual. It goes beyond that mere expression. It roots itself deeper, deeper than just a temporary emotional response of a little embarrassment or guilt. See, shame is a small five-letter word, but when left unaddressed, can be quite damaging to the individual. Shame can be a persistent invader. It seeks to invade our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. The degree of this invasion can substantially impact how we view ourselves and consequently interfere on how we believe God views us as well. Here's a quick biblical reference that will help establish where I'm coming from as to the origin of shame. We read in Genesis how God created all the things, the heavens and the earth, and all things in the earth, and he also created mankind. He created Adam and Eve. And after he created all the things that he had created and saw that all was good, he rested, correct? And after he rested, he gave some instructions to Adam and Eve. He gave them plenty of instructions. He gave them several do's and only one don't. The do's were, you can be fruitful and multiply. You can eat from all the plants. You can have dominion over all the birds of the air, all the animals. You can have all the fish of the sea. You can have dominion. But the one thing you cannot do is eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, at the time of receiving this instruction, the Bible specifically says that they were naked and unashamed. It wasn't until Adam's disobedience that we now see where shame represented itself because it represented itself immediately after he had disobeyed God, he viewed himself differently. And then the result was he ran and hid trying to hide out of God's presence. So it wasn't the nakedness that was the thing that brought on the shame. It was the sin that caused the shame to come about. 
Well, if we understand that aspect of the origin of shame, we can understand something that may be a little bit different in our perspective of it. Any one of us can experience shame. It's now an element that's interwoven in our human nature. Shame made its presence known immediately following Adam and Eve's disobedience, but it continues to stain the lives of individuals today. Quite frankly, shame rarely prefers to travel alone. It it does not like to be alone when it's on its journey. It frequently encourages the company of fear, anger, and blame. Now, these don't only impact the individual. A person wrestling with shame may experience these, but they also project these elements onto others. And now, while we may have an occasion to experience shame, we don't need to give it an audience. Shame is like the talking stain of our sin nature. If it's left to persist, it will seek to present an argument against God's truth. God's word says one thing, but the stain of shame communicates something else. Shame is like the stains upon clothing. Some are more persistent and sometimes difficult to remove. But while it may be difficult, it does not have to be impossible because we as believers understand when we're in Christ, with Christ, all things are possible. So our culture readily accepts shame, and they, they present shame as a quasi-pseudonym for the word we call guilt. Now, while these words may be close relatives, they are actually distinctly different. And let me explain the difference between them. Guilt is a result of some infringement upon a moral, a principle, or a value. It lets you know that you did something wrong and can lead you to want to correct that wrong. Shame declares that something about you is wrong and doesn't allow you with an alternative to be able to change. See, guilt can lead you to feel remorse for what you did. Shame can lead you to feel remorse for who you are. Now, guilt can lead you to want to change. Shame will lead you to believe you cannot change. Guilt can lead you to accept the redemptive power of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Shame can lead you to believe that you are powerless in the presence of the cross. Our culture, culturally speaking, it may seem innocent to engage in a little shaming back and forth, to encourage a change of behavior, or even worse, make somebody the subject of a joke. We see this activity often within our culture. There appears to be new developments and new types of titles of shaming being expressed today. Maybe you're familiar with a couple that I'm about to express. Maybe this might be new to you. Now we got new titles, ethnic shaming, demeaning somebody because of their ethnicity, intellectual shaming, shaming somebody because they don't have a college degree or an education, body shaming, shaming somebody because of their image, and now social media online shaming, publicly blasting people on social media as if to demean them as well. Well, these are different aspects of shame, but they all come back to the same root cause, which is in sin. Addressing the sin issue can address the issue of shame. But an ill-informed culture may not always arrive at this decision. Believers are the ones who best equipped to address the issue of sin. We are called to be the examples of Christ that gives opportunity for others to want to join the kingdom. We have to present the best opportunities for people to receive God's word. And sometimes we have some of the best tools to do so, yet we are so silent about what it is that we may represent. We're worried about how someone perceives us. 
like to say that sometimes the best testimony that you have is the one you're afraid to share because you're afraid to see what somebody will say, but that will deliver somebody far beyond your expectation. Yet the enemy knows where the power is held, and we reluctantly don't approach it because we're afraid of what somebody might think. That power is there. A friend of mine used to say, it's a dangerous place for the enemy if somebody is free in their testimony, and I believe that wholeheartedly. So we need not be afraid of that. We know we live in a world full of ill-informed people doing ill-informed things. But this is just a merely a statement of fact. God calls us to make a difference in the world and not conform to it. The greatest difference that we can have on the world is spreading the gospel. Because spreading the gospel means proclaiming God's truth. And God's truth provides the antidote to being ill-informed. It tips the scale from being ill-informed to being God-informed. It can change a person's present reality. A person now has knowledge of the truth about God. We see evidence of ill-informed people doing many, ill-informed people doing many ill-informed things, hurting other individuals, to include shaming. And that's why it's important for God's people to make an impact in our culture. Here's a reminder for you. A culture that refuses to hear God's truth will certainly need to see it demonstrated in the lives of believers. We are the tangible representatives of Christ. God expects us to be the touch points that reaches other people. We are the ones that are supposed to be the image of God in this earth. We are the ones to put on the form of Christ and extend that to others so that they have a representation of what Christ expects. We are the ones that are supposed to be the image in the falling world. We are called to be countercultural, which when the culture deviates from God's standard. We are called to stand upon God's truth and be prepared to boldly proclaim it at the Holy Spirit's dispatching. Nowhere in the Bible, in the 66 books, I dare you right now to go find it, go from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 in the books of the Bible, to tell me where God ever stated, you need to go along so you can get along. You won't find it in any parts of those scriptures because he's never said it. What he has called us to do is something distinctly different. He called us to be bold and courageous, to walk upright before the Lord. He told us to put on the full armor of God, that we'd be able to stand in the face of the enemy. He didn't call us to take on what the form of the world is. He called us to be distinctly different, and that's what we need to be. Doing so allows us to be the powerful witnesses of God's truth within our cultural context. We may have an encounter to encounter, we may have an occasion to encounter shame, but we live because we live in a sinful world, but we need not own it. Someone can present some aspect of shame, but you don't need to possess it. It is you that takes the ownership of that and onboard it. It resonates with you. We don't have to accept that. And because we don't have to accept it, we have an alternative. We have to have a proper way of dealing with the shame of this world. Now, some of you may think this is normal behavior. And to some extent, that may be true. If we're going to believe that we're living according to our sin nature. As believers, we are called to set a different example We renounce our sin nature in exchange for our new nature. If we do what the world does, then we cannot distinguish ourselves as being different. A few weeks ago, Pastor Rock encouraged us to remember who we are. 
and emphasized that Jesus relied completely on the Holy Spirit and that we should do the same. By doing so, the Spirit equips us with the tools necessary to effectively be His witnesses. What God has done in your life being expressed through your mouth will touch the hearts of someone else. We're His witnesses. And one of the most powerful tools that we have to combat the work of the enemy is our testimonies. It is what we are ready and poised to do that you can share at any time, confirming what God has done in your own life. And all you have to do is take the breath that God gave you, share it to somebody else, not be afraid of what somebody else is going to say. And you don't know where those words will go to touch, but God will direct them specifically to touch the hearts of individuals, and he'll do his business through that. We're afraid to share testimony. And so that effectiveness of our testimony, we reserve it. We hold on to it. And that is one of our greatest opportunities to not stand silent but proclaim God's truth. And just like we have a great opportunity before us, that's because each and every one of you know your own story. Don't nobody know the story quite like you do, and can't nobody tell it like you can. But individuals will quickly, as they're ministering and walking alongside somebody else, share that person's testimony of deliverance. Share your own. Get to a point where you can be free enough to share yours. It's okay to encourage somebody else that you walk the minister, but get to the point where you're ready to share yours. God saved you, delivered you, freed you, and now you can share what God has done in your life. We have the strongest tools, but yet we are afraid to use them. But we shouldn't be, hey, we also know the enemy comes with his attacks as well. He has tools in his arsenal as well. And one of his greatest efforts is sowing seeds of deceit to get you to believe something different than what God has spoken. He's great at it. He's been doing it since the beginning of time, continues to do it today. That's because deceit is a frequently used munition in the arsenal of the enemy. He deploys it often because it's effective. If it works, if it continues to work, why not let it do it again? And that's the stance he takes because we permit that to permeate. He knows it's effective. He knows he can get you to believe a false narrative about your transformation through Jesus Christ. The result of that false narrative can lead to self-defeat. You start defeating yourself. You can't get to a winnable position if you feel you're entering the game already, ready, poised to lose. You're already in a position of defeat. Think about it. You question your own victory through Christ Jesus, it'll be doubly hard for you to share that with somebody else, almost next near to impossible. If you don't have confidence in what Christ did for you, how are you going to share that Christ can do the same for somebody else? We have to have the same confidence by dis- demonstrating and displaying, God did it for me, he can do it for you as well. If Jesus' sacrifice washes away the sin from our proverbial spiritual garments, then it is the enemy who searches those garments for the remnant of the same to be your constant reminder. Shame positions itself just like a carjacker. It lurks about waiting to overtake your spiritual control. The enemy delights in your shame. He knows of the spiritual effectiveness of being free. He's seen it before, and he knows it can be quite effective. He does not want you to be free. Nowhere does he want you to have your freedom. He prefers the stain of your shame to be apparent. He doesn't want you to live a life of spiritual freedom. He doesn't want you to have the freedom of sharing the gospel. 
He wants you to focus in on your past failures, to remind you of your confessed sin so that you will run and hide under the inappropriate weight of shame. He doesn't want you free. He wants you in bondage. And if he can put them shackles again on your wrists or on your ankles, tying you to something that God has already freed you, he's already been on his mark towards defeating you, and all you've done is just own something that's been a false lie about what God has said about you. We don't have to accept it, but we walk in some of that because we bear some of that shame. Knowing that he is the accuser, he is not, he's not reminding us of our free future. He continues and desires to hold us captive to our spotted past. And we have to constantly affirm that Christ has set us free. And the scripture says, if Christ, who Christ has set free is free indeed. It's a simple statement, but it has such, mag, mag, it has such magnitude in your life. Who Christ has set free, certainly right now you're free. It's end of point statement, put a period there. It means it is so. And we own that. God has spoken it, I believe it, and we walk in it. The incomparable Love of God confirms our safeguard from the stain of shame. The love God has for us, the love he pours on us, is the reason why we can hold firm to this aspect that we're free from the stain of sin. Affirming our freedom from shame is easily understood in that scripture reference, the passage that I gave today. It gives bold declarations of certain things that God says about us that John has declared through that writing. The opening of 1 John 3 describes a wonderful example of God's amazing grace for us. Here we read the Apostle John express how God's great love has been lavished, which was translated from the word bestowed upon us. He then says, not only says that he loves us, he also calls us family and calls us his children. There is something significant here. This past Christmas, we had all of our grandkids over, except for Brooklyn, who's still in the hospital. So all five of the other grandkids were all over. Brooklyn's in the hospital. We went later on to visit her. But all of them all had about the same response, I'm going to tell you. We presented our gifts to them. And these grandkids ripped into those gifts feverishly with big smiles on their face. Couldn't get overwhelmed, just waiting for the next one. They were just overwhelmed. It was like they were just, just hot up on sugar a hundred times, just feverishly going at it, just paper running everywhere. And I also thought in that one quick moment that why did, I don't understand why Faye has us wrapping those gifts for seven and a half hours <laughs> for them to take 17 minutes to rip it all apart. That's seven and a half hours of life I'll never get back. But it did bring joy by seeing them ripping up all those gifts. They were just overwhelmed, and they just felt, and we just sat there, and we were delighted in seeing them open those gifts. Nothing our grandkids did urged us to give them those gifts. It was just our love for our grandkids that poured that upon all of them. Well, that's a great example of the Scripture here, that the presentation of God's love for you is a perfect presentation of His gift of love for us. His love for us is so great that there's no amount of money that could have purchased his love and there ain't no great feat or action you could have done to have earned his love. He gives it to us and he gives it to us without apology. He makes no excuses for saying that he loves you. He lavishes us with his love. He overtakes you with his love. He overwhelms you with his love. And he sits back there and says, I understand what you've done. I've seen your imperfections. I know your flaws, but yet I still love you. You cannot disregard the love of God in our life. He pours it upon us. He presents it before us. And not only does he love us, he then calls us his children. He calls us family. He pulls us right in. 
And so his love is so great. And that's why it's amazing. We sing the song corporately right in here. We sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound to save the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, and once, but now I see. Those are the words, and it means right, and it makes us feel good. But if you had the opportunity to insert your own testimony about what once was, but now I am, it means something even more. It makes that Amazing Grace so much greater for you. If somebody can say, I once was an addict, but now I'm addicted to God, that is something that's amazing grace. If I once was a liar, but now I tell the truth about God, now that is amazing grace. I used to go around and sleep around, but now I give intimacy with God. That's amazing grace. But those are the things some people are afraid to share. And we hide back in the shame of what God has already delivered us. And so we understand that there is nothing at all that we can do. There ain't nothing you can do. You can't remove yourself from God's love because there ain't nothing you did to earn it. He establishes there. Your confession just confirms it, and we walk in it. And he said in Romans himself, he tells us that neither death, nor life, nor angels, principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing to include shame. Now, it ain't there. I put that parenthetically. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. <laughs> Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And after he reminds us of God's love and affirming our position as his children, he declares that we are different from the world. Since we are made different from the world, we are called to make a difference in the world. The stain of shame may be persistent, but it doesn't have to be permanent. Because Jesus' blood covers our sin stain. We don't have to accept the status quo. We can expect great things and anticipate God can do great things through us. Jesus himself said, whoever believes in him will be able to do his works and what greater because he has gone on to be with the father. Ask anything in his name, he will do. Why? Because he wants to bring glory to the father. That's his words, not mine. Read it, accept it, walk in it. God says we can do greater things. As you allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, you will be able to accomplish things far beyond your expectation. God seeks your willingness and your availability to be his conduit simply to draw others back to you, draw people back to him through you. And as the writer of the hymn had wrote, this needs to be our position. This is the way we have to position ourselves. Think about the words as I express them. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, and I am just the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. And the simple words of that hymnal mean so much by placing yourself at a place of expectancy, expect, ex, expect, expectation and, and, and anticipation, excuse me, and then God will move through you. Expect God can do some great things through you. This is a weekend where we focus in on sanctity of life, and we put emphasis on the lives of the unborn. The importance of this issue was never intended to be relegated just to a position of political platform and debate. God has always expected his people would tell the truth because God's truth was shed light upon darkness in the presentation of the sin world. We should be ready to present his truth so that we can do it in such a way that will promote loving, intentional relationships. We are, as believers, should be actively engaged in these relationships. We have an awesome responsibility, but we also have an awesome opportunity. 
We all have to be God's agents of love. And while guilt and shame may be present in regards to the subject of abortion, it doesn't have to remain that way. The lasting effects of shame can be internalized and be quite corrosive. It can eat away at a person's esteem, their passions, and even their spiritual purpose. But shame does not discriminate. There may be individuals in this room who carry the shame of a past decision. There may be people who carry the shame of being ambivalent to the topic. There may be some people who have been so overzealous about standing up for their point that they push people away instead of inviting them in. And if that ain't you and the subject of abortion doesn't touch you, you have to think about your own element of shame. I said it doesn't discriminate. There are some elements that I didn't describe in what I'm saying here as we highlight sanctity of life, but there are many elements of shame that many people walk in. It doesn't discriminate. If that's you in this room, I want to pray for you in the next few moments. As I've described shame, I want to pray specifically for you with every eye closed right now. Because what I'm asking, I'm not asking you to stand up, raise a hand. I'm not asking you to indicate that. The enemy will play in them parts. What I want to pray is you're walking your freedom in Jesus Christ. If that's you, identify that's me and I need prayer. I'm praying right now. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm praying for each and every individual who has been moved by the words of today who now understands that maybe there's an element of shame. Maybe there's a stain that needs to be removed. Father, I'm praying that you pour your spirit over them. And by your spirit, God, that you would encourage them, embolden them to understand that you have freed them from that bondage, that the stain is no longer there. You have covered it already by the sacrifice of Jesus' blood for all sin. The enemy can't remind him what has already been put under the blood. He need not dig it up because you already have covered it, and they need not hold on to things that are in the past. Father, free them in Jesus' name. Allow them to understand that you have freed them. But also with that prayer, God, I'm praying that you align them with the right voices, with the right people that will speak life into them. No longer those who would talk about and detract from them and demean them. Allow there be life-speaking individuals who pair up with them, that build up, to equip, to, uh, to pour into, so that they walk in the fullness of all that you've called them to be. Father, I'm praying that they be powerful witnesses for you. You do the work through them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.